Hello, hi, and welcome to another episode of The Emma Gunn Show. I am your host, Emma Gunn Awardner, and on this episode, I am joined by Dr. Megan Rossi. Now, Megan is a registered dietitian and nutritionist with an award-winning PhD in gut health. She is also a leading research fellow at King's College London and is currently investigating nutrition-based therapies in gut health, including pre- and probiotics, dietary fibres, the low FODMAP diet, and food additives. I don't think it will come as any surprise to you, my most excellent listeners, how much I hear and see from people in the wellness category who profess to be able to tell you how to eat for a better quality of life, for a better gym workout, for a better this, whatever it might be. But we all know that a pretty plate of food on Instagram doesn't mean a healthy meal. And we also know that in order to really talk about diet and nutrition, you need to have expertise. And that's why I'm so delighted to have Megan on the podcast. She is, in fact, one of, if not the most qualified person I've ever spoken to about diet and nutrition. And the reason I was so keen to speak to her on the show is because I receive emails all the time from listeners about food, diet, nutrition. And I also, and I also see the conversations that happen in the Facebook group on the subject of food, wellness, diet, nutrition, weight loss, whatever it might be. And quite how much confusion out there there is out there. And I just want to say, of course you would be confused. There's marketing messages. There's people who aren't qualified talking about how to eat. There are people who are qualified who have a particular area of interest that they talk about. And it's very, very hard to know. It's very, very hard to know what the right thing is to do and sort of to come back to a center point. And I would, I would hate to add confusion to that, which is why I'm so keen to speak to Megan and why I'm so glad that we recorded this episode, because she really is somebody who can bring clarity to the conversation without bamboozling and kind of bring you back to the center point that will be helpful for you. And that's really important to me. The foundation of this episode is actually Megan's new book, Eat Yourself Healthy, which I really enjoyed, especially at the start. There's just a, a really brilliant overview of what your nine meters of digestive system does. And it might seem like, really? I just want to get to the chickpea pancakes. But actually, it's a, it, it just means that you don't ever feel like you're going, to get, you're going to get to a chapter later on and feel like you need to catch up or you're not really sure what she's talking about. It's brilliantly written. It really, really is brilliantly written. So, um, yes, it's a very supremely helpful book and I can't wait for us to talk about it. In this chat, Megan explains what a balanced and healthy diet really looks like what supplements you should be taking, whether those morning yogurt drinks are really helping your gut bacteria and how, a high, and how a healthy digestive system can help a healthy mind. The links to Megan, her book and everything discussed will be in the show notes, which can be found wherever it is that you are streaming and downloading this episode. I am so, so glad that she's here. I'm sure that you can tell that by now. But here she is making her debut on The Emma Gunn Show. It's Dr. Megan Rossi. Now, it is so good to be having a conversation with somebody who is qualified up to the eyeballs. <laughs> Megan Rossi, Dr. Megan Rossi, thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. I'm so excited to have this conversation with you because we are going to be talking about all things gut health in, gut health in conjunction with your new book, Eat Yourself Healthy, which I've been devouring. Um, it's a really complicated subject. It, yeah, I think the way it has been portrayed sounds really complicated mm. and people kind of go oh my god I need to be on like eight different supplements and yeah. go on this gut cleanse to have good gut health but it really doesn't need to be that complex mm. you know there are so many simple little changes that people can make to really nurture um you know their gut health mm. and I guess on that note I always like to you know start off because I don't know your audience and how much they know about gut health but mm -hmm. talking about what actually is gut health yes 
what is the measure? <laughs> that's such a good, I'm so glad you said that because every time I was doing a, even the tiniest bit of research, I was like, but how do you know your baseline? Exactly. How do you know what you're working with? Yeah. So gut health actually relates to the functioning of our entire digestive tract, which is this nine meter long tube mm -hmm. that delivers food from entry all the way to exit. <laughs> and I guess if I was to break down the science, there's really three main reasons why having a good gut health is important. Mm -hmm. So the first one is around the, con you know, the good old concept, you are what you eat. Well, it's not quite correct. It's more of you are what you digest. So okay. if you um, have good gut lining, then what you eat, you're going to extract all that nutrition out of it and digest it and it gets into your blood system and feeds all your cells. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a good gut lining, then you're not going to actually be able to extract all the nutrition out of the food you're having. Mm -hmm. So for you know to get the most out of what you eat, you need to have good gut health. Mm -hmm. The second element is that along that nine meter um, digestive tract lays 70% of our immune system. Huge. Well, that's it's why massive. they, I mean, in previous episodes with experts, we've talked about the fact that illness begins in the gut. Yeah. And and many of them do, although I'm not going to, mm. you know, claim that everything does. Mm. Um, but yeah, you know, our immune system obviously is so important for protecting us from, mm. you know, all of the different things out there, as well as ensuring that, you know, we react right to, this, to certain types of foods. Like, you know, we know that um, peanuts are actually safe versus, you know, if our immune system isn't trained right some people's immune system might think peanuts are actually really toxic and bad mm. because it hasn't been trained right so you know having an immune system that's been trained really well um, is hugely important and that brings me to the third element of gut health is the fact that we have the trillions of microbes in the lower part of our intestine which we kind of consider like an acquired organ because we're not born with it it develops as we get older mm. and it's you know it's full of the trillions of bacteria pretty much and it's actually the bacteria that train our immune system to know whether something's bad or good oh gosh yeah so you know that all the increased um f you know incidences of things like allergies food mm. allergies we think it's probably because when our kids are quite young we've actually been really really clean with them and they haven't been exposed to the gut bacteria which are needed to train their immune system correctly so that's one hypothesis out there which you know the scientific world is trying to prove still so yeah you need to go and play in the dirt basically yeah no it, it, it's a thing people who grow up on farms actually are less likely to have food allergies less likely to be obese and less likely to have things like asthma Okay, can we just go back to the peanut yeah. thing? <laughs> just because I want to understand that. So if you, so nobody should have an issue with peanuts, but you have a peanut, you have an issue with peanuts if there is something wrong with part two. Yes, so your immune equation. system recognizes it as something quite toxic. Mm -hmm. So your body kind of starts to fight it. And there's that. Um, and that's because you don't response. have the appropriate trillions of bacteria in part three. So it's more of the, the trillions of bacteria when you're growing up probably didn't train your immune system correctly. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. So it's not like taking a, a probiotic will then correct everything. It's more of we think the first three years yeah. of life is really important for the bacteria to really teach our immune system, you know, what it should react to and what it shouldn't react to. Interesting. Okay. So <laughs> that brings me back to something that I wanted to get on much later, but let's just go into it now, which is the thing of you could take a probiotic or you could take something and just think, right, I'm fixing my bloating. And it's it's not as simple as that, is it? Yeah, absolutely. So probiotics is what we call the live bacteria that have been linked to our health benefit. Mm. Um, and what we see is there's, you know, thousands of different types of bacteria. Mm. Now, each bacteria 
can do different things. It's got different skills. So just like if you've got a vitamin D deficiency, you're not going to go and take a iron supplement and think, oh, that's going to how I'm going to help it. It's mm. the same with probiotics. You can't just take any old probiotic and expect to get some benefit. Right. Now, if you're, you know, generally healthy, the evidence suggests that you, you don't need to take a probiotic capsule generally. Um, however, there are some conditions where there is growing scientific evidence for. Um, probably the area that's got the most strongest evidence is if you take an antibiotic. Right. Um, there's good evidence to show that if you take a specific probiotic, not any one, but a specific one throughout the duration of your antibiotics and for about a week after that, you've got a much lower risk of getting antibiotic-associated diarrhea, which affects around 30% mm-hmm. of people who take antibiotics. So um, the the important thing about that is getting the bacteria name right. And again, in the book, I do list a bit of you know what I would call the probiotic prescriptions because we really need to think of them nearly like mm. medication. So not to get too sciencey, but the name would be Saccharomyces boulardii. Um, that would be the microbe that you take, and you would take it at 5 billion CFU twice a day. So it's it sounds really medical and that's actually how we need to think about probiotics yeah and so actually someone in the facebook group um did say and i think it's a brilliant time to say this literally the comment when i said i was going to be doing this podcast was explain prebiotics and probiotics to me like i'm a (laughs) (laughs) five-year-old i love that and i think we all we all need to Mm. have that sort of lay level explanation because it can be so confusing you hear words all over the place so it is confusing because there's literally one letter difference. So mm-hmm. P-R-O-biotic is yep. a live bacteria. So probiotics is a live bacteria. P-R-E-biotic, prebiotic, is the food for the gut bacteria. So many of the prebiotics are actually types of dietary fiber. Mm-hmm. So we find prebiotics in you know most of our plant-based foods. And we find the probiotics, um, you can get them in the capsule, but I prefer the natural sources um, for the general population of things like kefir and live mm. yogurt and kimchi and sauerkraut, which naturally contain live microbes. Okay. And <laughs> there are so many brilliant comments on the Facebook group, but we will get into them a little bit later. I wanted to dig into the quote that is on the back of the book because it just, it, it, I read it and I think I, I want a piece of that. I really, really want it. So it is boosting the health of your gut is the secret to transforming your overall health and well-being. Whether you're looking to tackle an existing tummy issue, feel more energized, be less anxious, have clearer skin or lose weight. Good gut health is the best place to start. And my question is just, is it really that simple? So, you know, I think not many people realize that gut health isn't just another trend. It mm. actually is a landmark scientific discovery. And you know, it can be tricky to understand that because, you know, the media come and go with all these different types of topics. And at the moment, it feels like gut health is, you know, just on trend. Mm. Yeah. But if you look around the world at all the different scientific groups, it's not just, you know, one or two studying the gut. Most uh, research groups now are incorporating an outcome measure. So looking at the gut in some way in their research, because mm. we're all, you know, really seeing that this is something huge. This really is changing. Mm essentially what it means to be human Mm. Um, and I guess that's one of the reasons why I got more you know as a scientist got more into public engagement because I want the public to Mm. realize that this is actually legit it's not just another kind of fad trend yeah Um, so yeah it it is true that our gut bacteria can do so many things for us in fact my PhD um, was looking at if we could nourish award-winning PhD (laughs) Um, yes it was actually thank you very much Um, if we actually nurture our gut bacteria with the right nutrition and I'm sure we'll talk about about what mm. that exactly is, um, then we can actually improve the health of other organs like our kidneys. Mm. And in fact, other research has just really um, come out 
highlighting that if we again look after our gut bacteria with the right nutrition, then we can actually improve our mental health. Mm. Um, and I just find that so powerful. And, and it's because these trillions of microbes within us, if you know, they actually outnumber human cells. Um, if you count all the cells in the human body, we contain more bacteria cells than we do human cells. And I yeah. think is it is it those cells in the book? You're like they've been around for millions and millions of years, longer than humans. We, they'll be all right without us, but we won't be all right without them. <laughs> it's true. We can't survive without these microbes. They actually do so much for us. Mm. Um, you know, they produce so many different vitamins, mm. um, different hormones, different communication molecules. Again, that's how the gut and brain can communicate. Yeah. And I think when I opened up this discussion in the Facebook group, what I what I kept coming to was people obviously having a real emotional uh, feeling about an issue they were having, but it was very, very specific. And I wonder if, and what I found with this book and the fact that it it opens with, let's just have a look at these nine meters so you understand what each part of it does and why it's there and what its function is. I wonder if taking a step back and almost going back to school and starting from day one is the the key to kind of taking charge. Absolutely. And I I really have written the book as kind of like a guide to the gut because people are going to be faced with so much crap (laughs) Um, because, you know, like I said, gut health is a landmark scientific discovery and there's always going to be people that kind of come off the back foot and try and make Mm. a fake supplement or kind of, you know, prey on people's vulnerability and wanting to get know Mm. about the science. So having that basic understanding of actually what is this nine meter digestive tract what actually happens to food when i swallow Mm -hmm. it actually can really help people safeguard themselves from some of these like fatty supplements that Mm -hmm. they're going to be exposed to so having that basic understanding can really be comforting for people as well as you know symptoms like if people get a bit of bloating actually understanding that having a little bit of bloating particularly after a high fiber meal is actually natural Mm -hmm. and and not to freak out about it like don't worry your bacteria aren't all out balanced Mm -hmm. it's sign of a well-fed gut bacterial profile if you have a little bit of bloating after some high fiber meals i was at a press event recently and there was a food blogger and a very seasoned health journalist on either side of me and she said and the health journalist said i eat beans in the evening but only on nights when my boyfriend isn't staying over because obviously i bloat and the food blogger said or health blogger said um oh you just need to wash them four times (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna have to keep these two apart (laughs) Anyway, but to you, to your point, you are a registered dietitian and nutritionist. You have a PhD, an award-winning PhD in gut health, and yet it it can be a free for all on social media. You can do a distance learning course that costs under a thousand pounds or a thousand dollars, and you can get a qualification. And then you, can, if you are good at taking pictures of food, you can start giving out advice. And that's where I worry. That's why I'm really glad to have people like you on the show who can actually say, well, this is what this is what's what this is the noise that you need to move away from. And when I open this up in the Facebook group, the amount of people who were self-diagnosing. Yeah. I mean, is that you deal with patients all the time? Yeah. yeah. I also have a so I work at King's College in the research world three mm-hmm. days a week. But then I also have a clinic on Harley Street where mm-hmm. I see patients Um you know, every week. And again, that was another reason why I stepped down from full-time research Mm. to get more out into, you know, public engagement because I was seeing people in clinic and it was just really upsetting that they had taken, you know, these certain online tests that had told them that they were intolerant to like, you know, most foods. Mm. So they were coming to me, they'd lost like 15 kilos and, 
you know, had so much anxiety around food and had become so malnourished. Mm. You know, they couldn't do all the things they used to. It was then starting to impact their mental health. And of course, their gut health was really unhappy because mm. they were restricting so much. And I just thought it, it's just so wrong that mm. that sort of message is getting out to the public. I need to do something about it. Um, why do you think it is? I, I was trying to unpick this yesterday when I was finalizing my research. And I was like, why is it so, why has it become so muddy? And yes, there's a whole thing about the aesthetic is obviously one thing, but is it because as new research comes out, everyone just clambers onto it? Yeah, absolutely. Any paper that comes out in a new area, there's all these entrepreneurs, which, you know, some are doing really good things, but others are just going, oh, I'm just going to jump on that. Mm. You know, say I can personalize your diet through your gut bacteria test and la da. Mm -hmm. Whereas actually there is some evidence. In fact, my research group looked at, yeah, maybe we can personalize our diet looking at our poop sample, but you know, it'll be another 10 years um, mm -hmm. before that will be translated. It's still early days. We need to validate certain things. Um, so all those tests out there, sadly, aren't science-backed at the moment. Oh. Yeah. They're just riding on a bit of a fatty a trend. trend. But it, okay, right. So um, one of the things I read in the book that I found quite poignant because, um, and it's only because I meditate and every day when I meditate, when I'm using Headspace and it says, do the body scan, just, just take a moment. I always stop at my stomach and realize it's tense and I always have to actively like breathe into it because it can just, I'm like, oh, I'm holding, I'm holding myself in or whatever. Um, what, why is the two-way conversation with your gut so high up, so far at the beginning, so close to the beginning of the book? Is it is it a starting point? Yeah, because it's just something that everyone can relate to. Mm. You know, you know, for centuries, you know, we've always related our emotions to gut feelings. Mm. Um, so things like, you know. I've got a gut feeling or someone mm -hmm. gives me the poops or, um, you know, I can't stomach someone's behavior. So we've known that our, our gut and our brain have always been connected. Mm. Um, so that kind of drives everyone in. If you're nervous for an exam or an interview. Um, but now I think we've got more science behind, I guess, a new key player to this gut brain axis. And that, of course, is the bacteria. Mm. Uh, so I think that's just such a powerful way where we're starting to understand that, yes, we've got this central nervous system, which is our brain mm. making decisions. But also we've got this inner community of microbes, which we can kind of think of like a second brain that's also impacting things like our mental health and the rest of our body. So we need to really nurture this inner universe. Mm. Um, and how we do that essentially is through nutrition because they rely on us to feed them. Ah, okay. So, and also the other thing about the gut is that it, it um, acts independently of the brain. Is, is it the only other, it's the only part of the body that doesn't require the brain? To tell it what to do. Yeah, yeah absolutely. But of course... The brain is very bossy and likes <laughs> to have its say, um, which is why a lot of gut symptoms actually are the result of being really stressed. Yes. Um, in yeah. that the brain is triggering that tension in the gut, which then causes things like bloating, stomach pain. Um, there's been some amazing studies looking at, you know, irritable bowel syndrome, you know, condition that affects around 10% of people in the UK. Mm. And what they've done is they put half of the participants on a diet, which we know certainly does improve symptoms. It's a clinical diet and it works really, really well. But they put the other half um, through this gut-directed yoga flow therapy. And they so they either had the diet or the gut-directed yoga flow. They followed them up after 12 weeks and found that both groups had the same effectiveness on symptoms. So I think it was around 80% of them had a significant improvement in their gut symptoms. So huh. one group 
doing the diet, which we have shown in clinical trials to work. The other group, not touching what they're eating, literally just working on that gut-brain axis through things like the yoga, the mindfulness. Mm. And I just think that's such a powerful way to highlight that you know, it's not always what we eat. And I think people definitely jump into that. If they're getting some sort of gut feeling, they go, mm. oh, I've got an intolerance, when actually it's not always that way. And again, hopefully with the book, there is a guide through mm. You know, finding people's way, whether they really do have an intolerance to things like, you know, gluten, which a lot of people blame, or whether actually they don't, it mm. could be something else at play. And then when we talk about dietary strategies to look after the gut, there's also things like the mindfulness, which we know certainly does look after the gut bacteria. It's the way that you are describing it is making me think, you know, if you want to optimize or maximize your brain and learn about something new, you would research it, read about it. And if the gut is the second brain, which is I've heard said many, many times, if you want to maximize and optimize that, you can also have an impact on that. It's like, it's the same as reading and learning for the brain brain, right? Yeah, absolutely. It really is. It's, it's such a powerful thing. And I guess why I am so passionate about the gut is because, you know, unlike our genetics, we can't change them. We're born with them. Mm. The gut bacteria living within us, we can change them. And they have been linked to things like, you know, um, ensuring we don't get diabetes, maybe like our granddad mm. did, um, you know, ensuring that we are less likely to have mental health issues. You know, one in four of us are meant to have a mental health event each and every year. So it's very common. Mm. So it's like taking our health and happiness to our own, in our own hands to some degree. And that, you know, we can beat things if we look after and nurture these mm. guys inside of us who really do want to look after us. It's just, you know, we need to look after them or they'll be too grumpy. Yeah, to do so. Even as even something as simple as in the book, you talk about um, an intake of fiber and the effect on health of a thirty gram intake of fiber a day, and how it can have something like a twenty percent reduction on heart uh, instances of heart disease just by that change alone. Yeah, so the studies have shown. Um, I think it was eight gram portion of fiber, mm -hmm. which you know you can get through. All of the recipes in the book contained at least eight grams. Okay. Um, so it's quite easy. You can get it in a meal. Most actually contain probably 10 or more. Um, but it could be something like a pot of hummus with some veggie sticks or even a can of just beans mm. um, contains around eight grams of fiber. And for every extra eight grams of fiber people are having, they lowered their risk of heart disease. I think it was like 19%. Risk of um, type 2 diabetes, I think it was like 15%. And risk of colon cancer by 8%. Oh, well, sorry, yeah. listeners, I don't know where I got the 30 from. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 but the recommendations is 30 grams of fiber a day. The government ah. guidelines say that. Most of us get around 20 grams. Um, but I think at this point, it's really important to highlight why fiber is so important. Like I think in the media, they're talking about all the time, but mm. what is it about fiber? And I guess historically, we, we kind of didn't really understand it that much. We thought, okay, maybe fiber just bogs out our poop and, you know, that makes us happy. Everyone likes to have a... Makes us go. Yeah, makes us go. <laughs> Feel better after you've gone. <laughs> um, but now we understand because we've discovered around these bacteria that actually fiber um, has no purpose for human cells. Humans actually don't contain the enzymes needed to break down fiber. Mm -hmm. The sole purpose of dietary fiber is to actually feed the gut bacteria. So this is kind of why plant-based eating is so beneficial because plant-based eating each plant has a cell structure which is dietary fiber so plant-based eating is all about the fiber mm. and when we eat the fiber it's not feeding the human cells it feeds the gut bacteria which keeps them happy allows them to produce different hormones which um you know communicate with our brain etc mm. so that's why fiber is you know an important nutrient to have 
Right. So we live in a, a shortcut world, a short term, a shortcut world. What if someone says, OK, if I uh, if I'm supposed to have 30 grams of fireballs, take a pill. Yeah. And a lot of people think <laughs> like that. <laughs> and it is tempting. I get it. People are busy. Mm. They don't have time to you know cook meals and things like that. Um, but we need to keep in mind that Fiber isn't just one nutrient. There's actually close to 100 different types of fiber. Mm -hmm. And it's not the only thing that feeds gut bacteria. There's other plant chemicals which we find in plant foods um, called polyphenols, mm -hmm. which is why, you know, they say red wine is good for you and dark chocolates because of these polyphenols. I believe that. I do yeah. believe it. I do believe it. <laughs> which feed the gut bacteria and then probably make you happy. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's unfortunately not something we can just get in a pill. Um, but you know, I also have a busy life. You, I'm sure as your life is very manic. So, which is why in the book, I have your really quick recipes that mm. take like, you know, five or 10 minutes on the go. Um, it's not about making everything from scratch and it being really, you know, a hard habit to change. It's about simple little tweaks. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I feel like a lot of people are stuck in the rut, are stuck in a rut I am. So I try to come to, I try to come at this from like, can I actually do it? And I look at my friends who live, who maybe eat plant-based or whatever. And I think it's a lot of work and I don't know if I've got that in me, but we'll, we'll get onto that because yes. actually the way that you break it down in the book, it does make me think, actually, it's just about being quite savvy when you go shopping. Yeah. And then the rest kind of, because you've got the recipes there, kind of um, helps itself. Um, is it a simple, I just want to ask this question, that if you have poor gut health, so say all that bacteria is not... They're not getting on. Um, is it as simple that you will be you will more likely succumb to colds and flu? Yeah, so there has been a link um, with people who have a lower diversity of gut bacteria, so not as many different types and therefore not as many different skills, mm -hmm. um, and higher risk of having things like sick days. Oh. Yeah, so our immunity um, is, is thought to be interlinked with our gut bacteria because remember 70 percent lives along our digestive tract which is where the bacteria live mm -hmm. so they're neighbors so they're constantly communicating and in fact there is some interesting research coming out around specific types of um, probiotics mm -hmm. so remember that the good bacteria that actually can really reduce your risk of getting the common cold oh yeah so um yeah it's it's watch this space it's interesting i received a press release about a probiotic that could uh help with mental health as well yeah, again, there's been quite a lot of evidence to suggest um, that specific types of probiotics may have some benefit on mm -hmm. mental health. I think it's important to be aware that um, the we call it the effect size, but how much it improves people's mental health. It was scientifically significant, but clinically, maybe it's not going to cure your mental health right. per se. But rem remember I mentioned, actually, no, I don't think I, I spoke briefly about um, the study where, no, I didn't actually. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been dreaming about that one. Um, there was a, a study which was um, undertaken by some of my colleagues in Australia, which was so, so powerful. And they showed that um, they randomized a group of people who had moderate to severe depression to this gut boosting diet for 12 weeks or they randomized them to either getting this it was a placebo group but it was a befriending type of counseling just to make sure that those who got the dietary intervention weren't seeing any benefit because they're seeing a, a, mm -hmm. a dietitian throughout the um, intervention but actually because of the food mm -hmm. so both groups followed either the diet or the therapy uh, for 12 weeks and they came back and they assessed their mental health and they found that those in the food group 
32% of them had a significant reduction in their depression scores that would have classified them as no longer clinically depressed. Wow. The placebo group, only 8%. Wow. And this is literally just changing their diet. And these people had moderate severe depression. So my take of it is if we've got earlier stage depression, maybe we can actually prevent it right. from developing. So yeah. that study, it's important to um, be aware that they all stayed on their medication. So it's not mm-hmm. like if you've got moderate severe depression, stop your medication, diet's going to cure you. Mm-hmm. But it's an adjunct therapy and then maybe more around the prevention um, for earlier stages. Yeah. Do you think... Um, it's harder to claw people back to eating in this way because of the weight loss industry. Yeah, you know, it is it is really sad to see that people have kind of gone down this weight loss mm. path and they've, as a result, got a bit of, um, yeah, a bad relationship with food and have mm. cut out foods and now they've got fear about reintroducing them. Yeah. And actually, when we think of, you know, what the ideal diet is for the good gut bacteria, it's actually a really diverse diet, which is full of all different plant-based food groups from things like whole grains. So people are freaking out. Oh, my God, carbs. I can't have carbs. Mm. Well, actually, our bacteria really like to have whole grain carbs. It doesn't mean you have to have loads of wheat, but things like quinoa, buckwheat, Mm. um, oats, rye, all those sorts of things, getting as much diversity as you can in actually keeps gut bacteria really happy. Um, Not to get too sciencey again, but there was one really um, great study which I think highlighted the importance that we do include whole grains in our diet and not just think, oh, I'll get my fiber from um, vegetables Mm -hmm. or uh, fruit, is that they took a a group of people, I think it was actually 16,000 people, females, um, and they looked at their risk of breast cancer and what they were eating. And they found that the fiber from whole grain actually had a protective um, effect on getting breast cancer. They looked at the role of the fiber from veggies and the fiber from fruit, and they didn't find that protective effect wow. on breast cancer. Now, I'm not just certainly not saying, okay, we just need to cut out the yeah. rest um, because each of the different types of plant-based food groups offer different mm. things. But it just you know makes you double guess when you think, should I be cutting out whole grains? Are they making me fat? Well, actually, no. Mm. You know, they nurture our gut bacteria, and you know, a well-nurtured gut bacteria is actually linked to things like you know better um, weight management and things like that. So, yeah, it's because I think for me, when I think about all of the diets I've written about over the years, and they they have been diets, they've been restrictive, or they've been, um, yeah, they've been restrictive, or you cut out a food group, and it's only now that I speak to people like you, and they're like it's what I fix in my clinic yeah. because somebody just hasn't had a carbohydrate or hasn't had refined sugar for, and refined sugar is not great, but it's not a little bit isn't too bad. Right. It's, it's really not. And I think there has been this, you know, fear around that S word, but refined <laughs> sugar, again, I'm not saying people should be loading up on it, but the refined sugar is actually digested really high up in their intestine, people's intestine. So it doesn't actually affect their gut bacteria per se. Hmm. Um, so a lot of people go, oh, I want good gut health, so I need to cut out all the sugars. And, and that's just not true if you mm. think of the physiology of the gut, which is why, you know, chapter one where I talk people through that, I hope that they then see actually the sugar's not going to reach there. Mm. Why I don't want people to have, you know, large amounts of refined sugar is because they fill up on these foods and then don't have enough dietary fiber. Mm. But if, you know, you can have the balance, which I know is not always exciting, it's a bit boring. You can have, you know, your your sweets. Um, if you get in your 30 grams of fiber a day, it's fine. So does this cover off the people who are like, I eat the same as my really skinny friend and yet I'm putting on weight? Is it that? Can that be... 
can the balance of what you're eating be the issue rather than the amount? Yeah, so there's, you know, many different thing factors when it comes to people who feel like they're eating the exact same thing mm. and and just aren't putting or they are putting on weight or other people that aren't putting on mm. weight. And we do know there is an element of genetics, but we also are starting to think the gut bacteria may have a role to some extent, um, where some people you know, people who are uh, obese typically have a less diverse range of gut bacteria in their guts. Um, So we do think that there is a link there. We're still trying to figure out exactly how that's Mm. manifesting, whether it is some of the bacteria which are triggering you to be more likely to gain weight or not. Um, So it is still early days. Uh, But yeah, I do certainly think that, you know, looking after your gut bacteria really is important for for weight management. Mm. Okay, well, so I think we should cut straight to how do I do that? <laughs> so where the science currently is at, it suggests trying to get in at least 30 different plant-based foods in your diet per week, which can sound really scary. sounds a lot. <laughs> but it's simple things like, you know, whatever you're having for breakfast, just adding a teaspoon of mixed seeds onto it. Then you're going to get four points right there. Instead of always going, you know, the steam cauliflower, why don't you get the steam multi-pack of veggies mm. to get that diversity in? And why the diversity is thought to be really key is because each different type of gut bacteria, like humans, has d- different taste preferences. Mm-hmm. So if we want a really diverse range of gut bacteria in our gut, which is linked with more skills, you know, better mental health, heart health, etc., then we need to feed it that diverse range of the different fibers. Mm. Um, so yeah, that's a bit of a target that I set people 30, uh, different plant-based foods in their diet a week. And so plant-based doesn't mean going vegan. Certainly doesn't. No, no. So it's just adding in the 30 different types. Right. In fact, they've done studies to have a look, um, where they've compared vegans versus omnivores who eat heaps of plants, but also have some animal products. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they looked at their gut health and found that actually the definition of vegan didn't mean they had better gut health. It was around that diversity piece. Oh. So you can have, you know, equally, if not better gut health than a vegan, if you're getting in that diverse range. So okay. it brings back to that concept of, you know, good old balance, <laughs> well, <laughs> which not many people like. Well, yeah, because balance is uh, one of the things I wrote down was why, why do, why do I eat? What do I, why do I eat when I eat and what I eat? Yeah. And it's never, I don't think it's ever been because I think, because I want my overall health to be great. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. It's a taste yeah. Which comes, you it's, know, it's so thing. important. Yeah. And one of the things which I guess a lot of my patients relate to, and I, I do, it sounds a bit nerdy initially, but I think people will start to embrace it is that every meal I have, I think, okay, what things do my taste buds want? Mm-hmm. But also, what things does my gut bacteria want? So, what sort of, you know, foods is on this plate to feed both of us? Mm-hmm. You know, if you think about it, you have a dinner party, you're not just going to, you know, have only meat if you're inviting vegans to come. You're going to have a mix. So it's the same with, you know, this inner community of gut bacteria. You should always provide them with some nutrition with, you know, whatever you're eating. Mm. Um, And one example in in the book is I speak about at Easter is when I, you know, white chocolate is actually one of my favorite foods. Now, white chocolate has no benefit for our gut bacteria at all. (laughs) And it was Easter and I was thinking, God, I feel... I actually feel a little bit guilty and it was when I was writing the book. I thought, this is just being super selfish. You know, I what have my gut bacteria gonna have when I'm enjoying this white chocolate? So I just made a few little switches, added in a little bit of extra virgin olive oil because the bacteria like those 
plant chemicals in that and then added some prebiotic foods so some dried mango and some pistachios sprinkled them on top and then some um, dark chocolate which so I essentially turned into a food that was you know very selfish and just my taste buds one that now we can both enjoy because Mm. you know it still tastes super delicious but there's things in there for the gut bacteria and I think if people start to think about eating that way Mm then they will have a much more balanced diet. Yeah. Um, so you can still have the chocolate bar, but just side it with a piece of fruit. Mm-hmm. You know, you can still have the packet of chips, but maybe add some um, uh, little um, bean nuts alongside that. So it is just about getting in that kind of balance, sadly. <laughs> okay. So we've got, we've got that. We're thinking about the gut bacteria. And then I think like a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of women who are listening to this podcast, I've always got like a, a calorie counter ticking over in the back of my head. And then I went through a period of tracking my macros. Do you have to, do you have to be juggling all of those things? You really don't. Um, one of the great things about dietary fiber, so remember that's our bacteria's favorite food, is that essentially, um, you know, humans don't digest it, so it's really low calorie. Mm. Um, but what it does, the bacteria actually ferment the fiber and release these different chemicals, which then tell our brain that we're full and mm. actually suppresses our appetite. So naturally, if you're having a gut-boosting diet, you actually feel really quite satisfied and you don't need to worry about, you know, weighing out the the grams of carbs that you're having because people just tend to eat less because right. of the fiber, which keeps them full. Uh, yeah, unless you have a distorted eating pattern, which I know... You know, many people do. Mm. And in which that case, I think it's really important that you do get a bit of support because mm. um, it can be really something you know, hard to overcome on your own. Yeah. Do you find that in clinic, that's that's a big thing, what you're dealing with, not necessarily the composition of what people are eating, but their relationship with food? Yeah, particularly when people have come and had tests mm. um, and have been told they've got intolerances. But then also, yeah, many people have got histories of eating disorders mm. and it's about relearning that actually, you know, food is to be celebrated. Um, many of these plant-based foods are foods that your gut bacteria are going to thrive on and keep them happy, mm. which will then essentially keep you happy. So kind of reframing it around it, not just being a self-centered thing, mm. but you're actually looking after someone else. And, you know, even females, like you think when you're pregnant, you really nurture and look after your body because you're, you're growing this thing. And I just think we're actually always growing this thing. It's the bacteria. We should be always looking after, you know, Mm. um, our bodies that way and respecting it, not just for ourselves, but for the bacteria inside. So plant-based foods are, we're talking about our um, um, beans. Yeah. So if you think plant-based foods, there's really six categories of them. So you've got the whole grains, like the oats, the wheat, the quinoa. Um, You've got the legumes, the beans and the pulses, so things like the chickpeas, the lentils. Mm -hmm. You've got your veggies, so, you know, broccoli, carrots. You've got your fruit, apples, watermelon. Uh, You've got your seeds, so a range of different pumpkin seeds, linseeds. And then you've got your nuts, so things like, you know, your pistachios, Mm -hmm. your macadamias. So there's essentially six different categories. Mm -hmm. And what we see is you should be trying to get some of those six every single day okay obviously the veg is probably where the biggest portion should come from mm-hmm. um but you should be trying to get in that diversity across all six and not cutting essentially one out and actually when i was going through the book and i was looking at the recipes and i was looking at the composition because you've got a brilliant um graphic which is you have two palms facing up and you're like this is when people say a palm full of legume this is this is what you should be thinking about and when people say a, pa- a palm full of something else you said yeah. this is what you should be thinking about and it's a really good visual to it's a bit like someone saying have a teaspoon of peanut butter if you get 
hungry and then you realize that you've taken out an <laughs> ice cream half, scoop yeah, yeah. of yeah. peanut butter it's like it's not a spoon so there is that element of i guess teaching people who probably have lost their way with portions what mm. is considered an actual portion and what we should be striving for to able to get that 30 grams of fiber in a day mm. um, so yeah i do hope again the book is that educational kind of tool that people can use I, I i think it is because i have looked at so many books and i have immediately gone nope because i look at the recipes and even and i'll be really honest when i saw chickpea pancakes i thought oh no and then when i read a bit more i thought well i i get it now yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> because again i'm not i'm not that person i see on social media who prepares their food a certain way but i think what i got from the book is well neither are they yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It doesn't have to be a lifestyle. It just has to be about buying a few different things in the supermarket and maybe ditching a few others. So it's not like you're adding more cost. It's really not. And you know what? If people have like a massive craving for, you know, this off the limits food, whether it's you know, KFC or McDonald's or something mm. like that, you know, a lot of my clients kind of have that and they, they crave and they just want to binge on it. And I say, you know what? I'm okay with you having that. But what I want you to do is actually sign it with a packet of steamed veggies. Go, go to the takeaway place, go to Tesco's, get some steamed veggies or, you know, get a salad mm. and just eat it together. So right. you, can, you can do both. It's just about changing that mental kind of stance on it's not off the limits, but if you're having it, yeah. you know, just. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join it with something that's going to feed the gut bacteria as well. Is it like you've got a bucket of chicken <laughs> and you've got your side of salad and it's wrapping it in the side of salad like an apology to the bacteria? <laughs> Pretty much. It's just saying, you know what? I'm, I'm being a bit selfish with the, the chicken, but that's fine. Here's your little treat. <laughs> I like it. So eat your fast food. Just do it with an apology to your gut bacteria. I like that very much. That's appealed to me. They also have, a. I think they're like, I've got a cartoon in my head of what the gut bacteria look like to yeah, you. So yeah, that's why. having a real part. <laughs> I want to just quickly ask you about reduce, best foods for reducing inflammation. Slightly uh, personal, but when I had um, DNA test, there was it was like, oh, you should be eating more cruciferous veg because it will help reduce inflammation. Yeah, well, crucif cruciferous veg certainly do um, decrease inflammation in everyone. Mm. And essentially all plant-based foods are going to be lowering inflammation. And mm. why that is, is because they've got the dietary fiber in it, they've got the polyphenols, so plant, those plant chemicals, which the gut bacteria can help metabolize. And what they do is they produce these things called short-chain fatty acids. Um, and that can really help um, prevent or, or pre yeah, lower any inflammation that's occurring in the body. Mm. So it's actually not buying all these super-duper supplements or having loads of you know just one type of veg because mm. you think there's a benefit. It, again, it really comes back to the basics of plant-based foods. In fact, the Mediterranean diet has been shown to be quite anti-inflammatory and that's mm. really based around having heaps of plant-based foods. One other thing though, it's not just plant-based foods. I know I talk a lot about that, but things like fatty fish, mm. the omega-3 has also been linked um, to what the gut bacteria like. And again, the gut bacteria have a role in you know, preventing that inflammation because inflammation can come from the immune system. 
And obviously the immune system is in phase two of yeah, the, the gut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's all interlinked. So yeah, you know, you see these special like anti-inflammatory diets and you just look at where the evidence is at and all of the evidence really comes down to things like Mediterranean diet as mm. being the key for just better gut, better overall health. Mm. And then in that also fits gut health, fits anti-inflammatory. Yeah. Do you think sometimes in the, the instance of the gut, because it's so complicated that there's an argument for maybe, well, not an argument for this because it goes against everything you do. So <laughs> let's not go there. But information is power. I believe that knowledge is power. But my grandparents' generation just ate what they ate. And they didn't have half the issues that we have. Yeah. And yet we know more than we've ever known. So what is that? Is that just, is that marketing? Is that just eating different lifestyle? We yeah. eat different schedules and stuff. I really believe, you know, it is our lifestyle and our access to these foods. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, there is one thing about having the knowledge but, you know, as a clinical dietitian, I see knowledge is just literally one aspect. Yeah. It's about that translation, making these foods readily available, mm. which is why I'm actually quite passionate about working with food industry to kind of translate where the science is at into really accessible food. Because if you know everything is, you know, what food you should be having, but then you're in a, you know, in traffic and you get home late and you're really hungry and your Tesco only has, you know, really processed bread then you're kind of stuck. You just Mm. get it. And a lot of us find that we're just so busy, we end up just grabbing for whatever's closest. But if we had, you know, the time to make Mm. these amazing meals or um, had a local butcher at a reasonable price down the road, then we would, you know, buy the right things, I think. Mm. It's just we don't really have that access. And I think food industry really does need to support um, Mm. the, the nation better. Well, you've done that in the UK with Leon. Yeah, yeah. So, again, that's why I was so excited about that collaboration and that they were, um, yeah, welcomed me on to work with them to, I guess, tweak some of their meals to make them a little bit more gut friendly. Mm. Um, and so now we've got, yeah, a range of different products. One is Megan's Sunday, yogurt <laughs> Sunday, where we've just taken out a lot of the added sugar. We've, you know, instead of having the ice cream, we've added live yogurt bacteria, live yogurt. So it's got the bacteria in it. Um, and it's super tasty, which is really, really important because people mm. aren't going to buy it if it's not. Um, <laughs> but it also has that added you know, health benefits. So yeah. yeah, hopefully more of that to come. For listeners not in the UK, I don't, where is Leon? Is it Leon just in the UK? No, it just um, moved into the US as well and hmm. in um, Europe. Oh, great. Well, yeah, it's, so it's starting to expand. It's a restaurant, <laughs> but they do take away and they do great food. Yeah, naturally fast food. Yes, too. naturally fast food. Exactly. <laughs> um, and then just before we go on to listen to questions, because like I said beforehand, we had loads and there's loads of really good talking points I wanted to do via the listener questions rather than quiz you until now. But there are seven principles, basically, of this balanced diet that will feed your um, gut bacteria, make you feel better. Uh, overall with your overall health and everything and so that's mostly plants diversity whole and natural foods herbs and spices legume fermented foods and then taste explore pause enjoy so that's the thing of being mindful around eating preparing food everything absolutely and Mm. literally if people live by that they don't need to buy all these crazy supplements. Mm. They don't need to buy into special diets. It's those principles. They can adapt to whatever they're currently eating and they really will improve their gut health. Do, and you, then do you take health. supplements? No. Yeah. No. Okay. That, great. <laughs> you live it. That was, that was the way I was getting to with that. So um, let's go into um, 
listener questions. And somebody said, what do you do when you have, when you don't have enough acid in the stomach? Is it true that nutrients do not get absorbed um, eventually? And I went back and asked if this had been diagnosed and the listener came back and said, no, well, via a quiz or via the internet. Yes. And this must be what happens in clinic a lot. Yeah, no, it really is. And I, I do I do feel really sorry for people because they feel like something's not right mm-hmm. in their gut. So they go online and they read all these different things. They might even pay some money to get these tests. Yeah. And it comes back with a result that looks really legit. And they're like, oh, my God, I've got this. What do I What do? I do? And the companies who sold them the test go, oh, I don't know, just wipe their hands clean. <laughs> and it just is so infuriating. Um, and I hear a lot of people saying they've got low stomach acid and they haven't been tested for it. Um, mm. So many cases, if they got low, if they you know legitimately have low stomach acid, then there's more of a medical investigation that needs. Can to Can you occur. be tested for it? Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So um, there's different, you know, quite invasive tests that mm. your GP will need to organise to assess that, and then would really try to understand why you have low stomach acid. But it's not as prevalent as people think it is. What would low stomach acid look like? What would they, what might have this listener have read online that would make them think, oh yeah, that's me? Yeah, so this is not the actual symptoms, but this is what people have attached it to. Things like bloating, indigestion. Right. Um, They might even think they get a little bit of um, constipation uh, and stomach infections very frequently. So those sorts of things, they go, oh, I've got that, 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 I must have this. But that's something that um, every woman will experience probably likely during their cycle. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And even a lot of those symptoms actually overlap with things like irritable bowel syndrome, um, which is actually more of a legitimate, diagnosable um, sort of um, now, condition. It, yeah, irritable bowel syndrome uh, confuses and intrigues me. And again, it came up a lot in the listener questions. But I've always understood that IBS is an umbrella term and it could be constipation to diarrhea and everything in between yeah that's really interesting um you're totally in touch with the science so (laughs) i guess historically we didn't really understand irritable bowel syndrome very well um we kind of thought it was just someone who had like a grumpy gut Mm. but we now have this diagnostic criteria um really to define what irritable bowel syndrome is now Again, in the in the book I talk about, there is kind of this umbrella term, which is a functional gut disorder, which sounds, again, quite sciencey. But essentially, it's when you've gone to the doctor, they've done the tests and checked that you don't have celiac disease, you don't have inflammatory bowel disease, and um, they go, oh, all the tests are fine, but you still have these symptoms. Um, so you don't have a structural, so structurally everything looks fine, but the function of your gut, how it moves, how the enzymes are released are dysfunctional, aren't working quite right. It's kind of like a display home. You go in, everything looks pretty, but you know, the electricity's <laughs> not working, the fridge isn't off, etc. Um, so there's this functional gut disorder as an umbrella term. And then under that, you can have functional constipation, functional bloating, functional um, diarrhea. Also, irritable bowel syndrome is kind of in there. Now, within irritable bowel syndrome, there is then four categories. Mm -hmm. You can have constipation-predominant irritable bowel syndrome, diarrhea-predominant irritable bowel syndrome, mixed or unspecified where your poop is kind of not soft or hard. Um, So there's, yeah, that little breakdown. And again, in the book, I kind of Mm -hmm. give more of a clear picture around how you can get that diagnosis of which functional disorder you may have. And why it's important is firstly to rule out other things that could be at play, but also it makes you able to be more specific with your um, management process. Like mm. what sort of strategy you try would really depend on what sort of functional gut disorder you may have. Mm. What should, I mean, should your stool consistency be consistent 
Or is it likely to change? It's completely fine um, to change every now and again. Now, there's many different aspects about your pooping consistency. One is the time of the day. So are you pooping the same time every day? And it doesn't really matter. If it's starting to be a, a burden on you and that you don't know when you're going to go and you get a bit anxious around it, then there's certainly things we can do about that. But most people do tend to actually go the same time, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the morning. Um, and that's just when we've got our, our gut movement is strongest then that's why. Um, but if you go at night, don't freak out. That's completely fine. The other aspect around, um, I guess, consistency is the actual consistency mm-hmm. of your poop. And for the listeners out there, if you Google the Bristol stool chart or it's yes. in the book, obviously, um, <laughs> you can see there's seven different types of poops. Uh, so you can have, you know, one and twos at the extreme ends. They're kind of like really hard Maltesers. Or you've got the six and seven, which is kind of like the really slurpy type of poop that you can have. Now, what we consider to be normal um, would be a type three, four or a five. Now, if you move around within them, that's completely fine. If you go and, you know, have a chili and it turns out you get a six the next day, again, don't freak out. It's more of if consistently you're having an altered um, Mm. poop then always go to your GP as a first port of call. If somebody says to you, um, my gut was fine one day and then literally the next, it's just not been right and it's now been two years, is, can that happen? It can happen, yeah. And I do hear this quite a lot. And, you know, with irritable bowel syndrome, we know that there's a number of different things that um, can increase your risk of getting it. For example, if you get a stomach bug, mm. you're at a threefold increased risk of getting IBS, you know, um, shortly after. Similarly, if you have multiple courses of antibiotics, if you undergo physical or extreme trauma mm. as well. So those, you know, really different sorts of causes, but they can all trigger irritable bowel syndrome. Yeah. Um, and for some people, it can just switch on one day. All of a sudden, they don't know what's happened. So it could be that you got that gut virus um, mm. or it could be that, you know, the traumas had its toll and it's just your gut kind of switches over. And I guess... Probably um, important to highlight that if we think about these functional gut disorders, we we consider them now as a disorder between the gut and the brain. So everyone's gut and brain's constantly communicating, Mm. but in these functional gut disorders, that communication is dysregulated, which is why things like the gut-directed yoga flow and the mindfulness have been shown to help because it helps with the underlying dysfunction of that communication. And the disconnect. Yeah. Ah, interesting. Yeah, and I guess... You know, we didn't really understand this historically and I was probably a bit of a skeptic about, you know, yoga and all those (laughs) sorts of things. But we have the clinical trials now Mm. that actually has the evidence to show these things are legit. It's not woohoo. It actually can make a meaningful difference in people's lives. Yeah. I I think that's the thing is like, show me the data. Exactly. Like that makes all the difference. Um, Another listener contacted the show about SIBO. Yes. So small intestine bacterial overgrowth. And I took a course of probiotics recently because I was like, my stomach's not right. And my friend said, well, take these. They worked a dream for me. Bought them off the internet, took them, nothing. And she just said, oh, I really worry about the amount of bacteria that's in your gut if nothing's happening. And she said, I think you've got SIBO. You need to go and get a breath test. And I'm glad that I then subsequently, a few days later, got your book. (laughs) (laughs) Because it made me take a step back. But what is that? Because it is the thing that people are now talking about mm-hmm. a lot yeah and self-diagnosing yeah so SIBO like you said it's where the bacteria have actually crawled up higher in the intestine so if you think of that nine meter long digestive tract the last one and a half meters is actually where most of the bacteria live 
and that's called they live in the large intestine. Mm. Then up from that, we've got the small intestine, which doesn't has some bacteria, but not as many. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit more sensitive. So the small intestinal bacterial overgrowth is essentially where some of the bacteria from the large intestine have crawled up a little bit higher into the small intestine. And then they start to eat some of your food that they don't normally eat and have a bit of a frenzy and a party. So it can trigger things like the bloating, Mm. the really loose stools and things like that and some stomach pain. Um, So it certainly is a thing, but I think more people say they have it than they actually do. Mm. We actually kind of think there may be a bit of overlap with um, irritable bowel syndrome and SIBO. We haven't, you know, in the scientific world, really been able to separate the two because getting a test for SIBO is really tricky Mm. you can get the breath test but it's not black and white Mm. it has to also be around things like the symptoms at the same time Um, and then you know if we think of the management like the therapy for SIBO the natural therapy um, is actually quite similar to irritable bowel syndrome in that often we reduce for a short amount of time the fermentable carbohydrates Mm. Um, but there also is a slightly different medical therapy in that you would have this specific type of antibiotic which has been shown to help kill off some of those um, bacteria that are higher up um so i think you know definitely talk to a, a qualified um mm-hmm. person in that space because there is a lot of i guess therapists out there which don't necessarily have the credentials that are diagnosing it um and yeah it's not the best thing so this is also one thing so if we do if we follow your book and we uh incorporate this balanced diet we plant-based how long should we be doing that for before we then say right well there must be an underlying issue because ultimately I've changed everything positively but I'm still getting diarrhea or I'm still getting constipated or I'm still getting bloating yeah how long should you follow this yeah so what I like about the book is it really does tap into wherever you are on your gut health journey so for people who are actually having the symptoms I don't necessarily recommend they start just trying to diversify their diet and add more fiber in Mm -hmm. because that can actually aggravate their symptoms okay so when i get people to complete the assessments if they're having gut symptoms i'd say go to um you know chapter four which has strategies around how to you know try deal with those individual symptoms or if it's irritable bowel syndrome now if it is irritable bowel syndrome i um, as a first strategy um look at some of the key foods which we know trigger symptoms um and that process takes about maybe eight weeks for people to um record whether Mm -hmm. what they're having and their symptoms see if there's an association if they do then they restrict it um for another couple of weeks and then they'll reintroduce it Mm -hmm. to see if they get those symptoms back so that's kind of stage one so that's yeah can take about eight weeks and then the fodmap light approach again can take you know another eight weeks so Mm -hmm. it's after going through the different processes um that have outlined in the book would i then say okay maybe you need to go actually and see a you know a gut specialist um whether it's a gastroenterologist or a gut specialist dietitian nutritionist um to get that advice now for the general per you know person who actually doesn't really have any gut symptoms but are just looking to maximize their gut health then i would say you know after 12 weeks um you should start Mm -hmm. to feel that little bit better Okay. And then one thing you mentioned there was the FODMAP diet. And one of the listeners wrote in and said, I've been on the low FODMAP diet for over a year. Every time I introduce high FODMAP food, my symptoms come back. I've been told low FODMAP isn't healthy long term, though my GP is okay with it. Any advice of of what to make sure I have to keep my gut healthy? And my question 
is should somebody be doing FODMAP for that long? Certainly not. So for those who don't know, FODMAP is a certain type of medical diet. And I did refer to it before mm. about those in IBS. Yep. And we know that it works really, really well in the clinical setting. But the thing about the low FODMAP diet is, is that the restriction part should only ever be done for a maximum of eight weeks. Mm-hmm. We then move on to stage two of the diet, and that's when we actually systematically reintroduce the different categories. And then we move on to stage three, um, which is around that personalization, where your diet's no longer low in FODMAPs. Uh, It might be a little bit lower than you were before, but it's adjusted to your personal threshold. Now, the listener there, um, you know, has said something which so many people struggle with, and I completely understand. And why, um, you know, they get the symptoms back is essentially, remember, irritable bowel syndrome, if you've got that sensitive intestine, the gut-brain axis is that dysfunctional, which means that your gut lining is quite sensitive. Mm. So you take out the FODMAPs for that short amount of time, and that decreases the sensitivity because you don't get the gas being produced because when bacteria eat some of the FODMAPs, they produce a little bit of gas, which is completely normal, completely Mm. fine. But when you have a sensitive gut, they can kind of trigger symptoms. Mm. Um, so if you take that out, people feel really good on the low FODMAP diet. And then when they go to reintroduce, if they don't do it at the right doses, as we systematically um, suggest, and again, that's why you should see a FODMAP trained dietitian mm. to do the process, um, then people can actually feel like they get their symptoms straight back. Right. So actually in the book and in my clinical practice, whenever I get people to follow a low FODMAP diet or the low FODMAP light approach which is in the book i always make sure they also do strategies to target that gut brain axis because the fodmaps aren't the cause of your ibs they just trigger it right you need to treat the underlying cause which is that dysfunctional gut brain axis so if people do things like the gut directed yoga flow mm-hmm. in the morning and then go through you know a, a period of restricting some of the really high fodmap foods um, and then do the reintroduction etc i find that they get the best result in the long term and by about a year they can actually include as many FODMAPs as they want because mm. they've helped that, you know, underlying gut brain access dysfunction. So it's not, nobody should be taking something out permanently unless no. it's a, going to cause a, an allergic reaction or yeah. some sort of... Or an actual intolerance, which again yeah. is one of the chapters we look at whether it actually legitimately is an intolerance um, or whether it's more of the IBS element. Whenever I speak to an expert about food, nutrition, I always feel like like I don't know like the velvet rope into the VIP area opens and it doesn't have to be as restricted and obviously my as much as I might do research and speak to people like you I am just a human who eats food as well and I am susceptible to messages and marketing and advertising and whatnot and then I speak to someone like you and it's just actually if I'm just sensible (laughs) I don't have to worry it shouldn't actually cause as much worry as it does for a lot of us yeah I know there is a lot of you know scaremongering out there and Mm. I think it's just it is a real shame that this happens um but yeah you know looking after your health really doesn't need to be that complex Mm. people just need that bit of a guide yeah and to know you know what pathway they should follow and to get a bit of confidence and feel empowered to actually take their health into their own hands Mm. and i think that you know when you read a blog it's not very comprehensive and even like on my own social media it's not comprehensive which is why you know i wanted to write the book is because it is super comprehensive so people can follow it and use it as a guide Mm. if you're just seeing all these little snippets you don't actually get the whole picture yeah and it can be really confusing that's why i like talking to people like you qualified (laughs) award-winning phds i also want someone else emailed in <clears throat> about metabolism boosting techniques that are actually effective with, for people with slow metabolism. She's already eating tons of veggies, etc., etc. My question 
how would one know that they have a slow metabolism? I think that's a bit of a, you know, a old wives tale, so to speak. Now, mm. we definitely know there is a small genetic component um, to whether people hold on the calories more um, than other people. It even comes down to things like, you know, your, your uh, muscle mass. If you have more muscle mass, then actually your muscles need more energy to burn. Mm. Whereas if you actually predominantly have more fat, which there is an element of genetics in there, but you can override it, mm. um, then the, um, the fat cells don't actually require as much energy. Uh, so there isn't any simple solution um, or foods that are going mm-hmm. to necessarily ensure that your metabolism is faster. We know that if you have more muscle mass, so doing things like weight training, exercise will increase the muscle in your body and therefore increase, um, I guess, your metabolism or how much energy your body needs to feed those those muscles. Um, but also, you know, having the fiber from all those six food groups, you know, can really nurture the gut bacteria, mm. which again are linked with better weight management. And if you, so if somebody thinks they've got slow metabolism, could it be that they actually just have slow digestion? Yeah. So I guess it really is about understanding what, what element is it? Cause they always feel sluggish mm. and really bloated, in which case, looking at the chapter on, you know, indigestion is going to help them and Mm. doing smaller, you know, techniques like having smaller, more frequent meals um, and, you know, doing a food diary, et cetera. Or is it actually because they've got extra body weight on them and they don't think they're eating much and they can't shift it? Um, In which that case, it will be looking at your whole lifestyle. So things like, you know, I notice in clinic, a lot of people who think they have a slow metabolism, actually it's the fact that they probably don't do as much um, exercise as, as they should um, their portions, even of some, you know, typically healthy foods mm. is actually really high and they're having quite a lot of calories, um, more than their body actually needs. Right. Um, so it's not, you know, always about blaming that metabolism. So there is that small genetic component. Um, but I think a lot of what we're finding out, we can actually override mm. bits to it. It's tempting though, to say, I've got a slow metabolism. I'm going to take some cayenne pepper and... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And there are, you know, those caffeine boosters and things like that. And what that does actually just raises your stress hormones, like your cortisol. So you just feel constantly more jittery and that's using more energy. So it's like, well, actually, you can take (laughs) them, but you might increase your body's inflammation over time, which is not a good thing. Yeah. Um, There are so many questions, but I'm going to keep it down to a final two because I know that we are tight on time. And so I'm going to ask about bloating. Um, And I can relate to this one that I, I... did a bit of a test with a few friends and they said the same thing of sometimes they can try not to eat to avoid bloating and then that causes them to bloat. Then they can eat something thinking, oh, this seems like it would be good for my bloating and then they bloat anyway. And they literally don't know. And I definitely have that where I'm like, oh, I've got to get into a dress tonight, so I'll keep it. I won't eat today. Yeah. Sorry, I do things like that. No, 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 it's normal. Do you know what I mean? I think it's about being real yeah. and having these conversations because if you do have a dress you want to get into, you don't want to be mm. bloated. And and sure enough, the not eating makes me bloat. So is there a, is there a hard and fast rule to bloating? <laughs> so one of the main things that people don't realize with bloating is a lot of it has to do with that gut-brain axis. Mm-hmm. Um, and particularly with people who have that more sensitive gut, what it does is sends messages up to their brain saying, look, there's a lot of activity going on in the, inside their gut. Um, we need to allow more room. And what it does is causes your diaphragm, so your breathing muscles to push down and your external gut muscles to actually relax. And so you get that bit of a pot belly. Mm. Um, And we've actually scanned the guts of people who have these sensitive guts with that bloating versus 
you know, normal people without mm. um, the sensitive gut and found they actually have similar amounts of gas in them. So it's not necessarily that you've got a lot of more air in you. It's your body's way of adjusting to that extra sensitivity inside you. So mm. doing things like the breathing exercises and the gut-directed yoga flow can really help with the bloating. Huh. Um, there's also things like if you're actually wearing really restricted clothing, like gym gear all day, then your that, body pushes again, back. Yeah, it yeah. pushes back, and that's that gut brain axis allowing more room um, for for that, and as a result, you get bloated. And what say if you're a person? I mean, who would do this? But what if you're someone who just then you know choose a couple of chalky tablets that say that they're going to release the gas discreetly? Yeah, there's no <laughs> evidence to show um, that those tablets work. Sadly, it would be amazing. I I fully agree that if we have a quick solution to it. I'd be all for it, but sadly, yeah, there isn't. You're better off just doing some deep breathing techniques. Yeah, just to really a activate and relax that gut-brain axis. Um, and then also there are some dietary elements. For example, if you're having heaps of sugar-free foods like chewing gum, mm. um, you know, a lot of those protein bars and things like that, that can actually – the sugars aren't well malabsorbed. They're kind of the fake sugars, um, and that can actually draw more water into your intestine and therefore cause some of that bloating. Interesting. So right. again, in the book, we do I do talk mm. about all of like the first line, second line, the third line therapies that I would recommend if someone has the bloating mm. to kind of go through. They're more of evidence based strategies rather than just looking and taking all different things from the internet. Yeah. Which is you know there's thousands of things out there as str- strategies. So why wouldn't you take the ones with the evidence behind it? <laughs> Speaking of um, protein bars and those sorts of and listeners, I'm using air quotes. Um, basically, health foods or the things that will say they're high in a dietary element that you really really need um we had quite a few people discuss this um someone drinks a glass of kefir every day is it actually doing me any good or have i been sucked into some health marketing hole and then there's also sorry the yogurt probiotic drinks Mm -hmm. they're like i have one every day there was a bit of a thread that went on about that and everything i've ever spoken to an expert about they're like no don't even bother they're not doing anything um so all of these yeah, whether it be supplement or this thing that says it's good for your gut, where do you stand on them? So it's a tricky one to navigate because there's a lot of fatty, crappy things out there. But I am actually hugely pro-kefir. Mm. Um, so I make my own kefir every day and it's actually the easiest thing. People go, God, where do you get the time? It literally takes me two minutes. All you do is get the grains, put it in some milk, leave it overnight for eight hours, get your strain up, strain it out. Then you've got your kefir, put it back in the fridge, done. Like it literally takes two minutes and you do it like every third day or whatever. Um, So it's super, super easy. And now my research group at King's just published a paper looking at the evidence behind fermented foods Mm. and found that actually kefir has probably the most evidence, still not strong evidence. Mm. Um, But if you think about it, anecdotally, our ancestors have been having it for thousands of years and associating it with benefits. And what kefir is essentially is kind of like yogurt, but just got more different bacteria in it. Mm. Um, and again, anecdotally, you know, I've been having it for probably two and a half years and I haven't gotten a cold. My, my husband's actually a GP. Um, and probably in the last year I've convinced him to start having a little shot of it every morning and he hasn't got a cold either. Now, again, that's very anecdotal evidence. Mm. Um, I'm trying to convince funders to let me do a clinical trial to really see whether we can prove it or not. Mm. Um, now when we look at the commercial translation of that, there's a lot of products out there which kind of say their kefir but maybe they're not as the traditional forms of kefir um so i'm really pro people just trying to make their own well because my worry and with all of the probiotic drinks that i i'm not going to say any particular household yeah, yeah. names but we all yeah, know yeah, them yeah, yeah. is that in order to be a 
made in bulk, transported, etc. They have to have preservatives in and they have to have stabilizers. So it would seem that if you're going to put your time into making anything, it would be that because you can control it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's so easy. Like, like I promise you, it literally takes two minutes to make once you get the hang of it. It's it's like a really easy thing. So. You know, I don't think you need to spend big bucks on these, um, you know, probiotic shots that people can mm. get for like four pounds. I'm like, that's just crazy. Now, if you enjoy the taste of some of these, you know, new foods and fine, um, but don't think, you know, you're doing yourself your health justice mm. by paying quite a lot of money for these super drinks. And if I am like, yeah, do you know what? Four pounds on a shot of wheatgrass seems completely great. Am I just not doing? You're not doing any harm. <laughs> You know what I mean? Go for it. <laughs> um, although, you know, that celery juice craze happened. Oh, yeah. Um, and with that, actually, if you're more prone to bloating and have things like irritable bowel syndrome, that could actually aggravate your symptoms because it's really high in the FODMAPs. Mm. Um, so particularly during that restriction phase, I actually say, you know, actually don't have it. Whereas most other things I say, look, it's not going to do any harm. Spend your money if you want mm. to. Um, but I wouldn't recommend it. Well, as you say, with kefir, for example, people have been doing it for thousands of years, but no one had a, <laughs> a Vitamix to grind up <laughs> and whiz up celery a thousand years ago. So that's Very one of the things. Um, now, one thing I wanted to finish on is there were hundreds of comments in the Facebook group about this when I said I was going to be speaking to a gut health expert. And there's a lot of emotion in this topic as well, as I'm yeah. sure you can imagine, a lot of frustration, a lot of feeling lost. And if somebody is in the position where they think any of these things that have come up, whether it's how do I incorporate a balanced, how do I create a balanced diet? I know obviously your book hand, uh, holds your hand through that. But if someone thinks I've got IBS and it's debilitating or I don't know what to eat for my Crohn's, which is one of the questions, mm. or what should I be avoiding for health and the menopause or how can I stop this from happening every month during my cycle? At what point do you actually have to say, I have to go and see somebody, an expert about this. Yeah. Gosh, it is so, so tricky. Um, and because not everyone can afford to mm. see, you know, a private healthcare professional. And then NHS, the waiting list to see a dietitian can be like six months. Mm. Um, so I don't like to say people, you know, need to go mm -hmm. um, and see a dietitian again which is why I have written the book yeah because I don't want people to come and see me in clinic you know <laughs> um, I don't have any more time nor do I want people to have to pay money I mm -hmm. want them to be able to feel empowered but of course once they go through the first line strategies and if they still can't you know find the answer that they need then going to their GP and asking for a referral mm -hmm. um, to to a dietitian yes they will have to wait uh, but you know, at least they're on the waiting list. Yeah. And so, again, if someone has emailed in and they think, right, maybe I do need to go, but cost is an issue. And I want to make sure that when I get there, they don't tell me that I'm being foolish. It's just because of what I'm already eating. Should you keep a diary for eight weeks? Should you begin to adapt? Yeah, absolutely. And again, in the book, I've, I've written a list of about 10 questions that I think people should um, think about before they see the mm. healthcare professional because you know a lot of the GPs get 10 minutes with you mm. so you don't have a lot of time so yes keeping a food and symptom diary bringing a list of your medications um, writing down your medical history any family history um, and any different tests that you've already had 
So come with a little folder mm. um, with that sort of stuff in it. Um, and again, if you pre-order the book, you actually get a little <laughs> special gut diary for free just as a thank you because I know it's all my followers who are going to be buying the book, you know, on pre-orders. Well, speaking of what, because this is coming out after the book comes out. So on your website, you have a, a quiz and you have various questionnaires. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So again, one of the, the things of the book is about personalizing it to your own situation. So I get people to complete a range of different questionnaires to assess where they are on their gut health mm. journey. And then we personalize it. So at the back of the book, there is a gut health action plan. And there's actually a place for you to write down the different tests and, and solution, not solutions, but the um, results mm. of them that you can then take to your healthcare professional if you do need to take the next step. Yeah. Thank you so much. I just, I, I find it very fascinating speaking to nutritionists and dietitians and particularly you, because I think even just looking at the questions that came in, obviously it, it causes distress. It can get in between people feeling confident about, you know, various things. And one listener um, really feels that her gut is unpredictable such a vicious cycle some mm. people don't want to go out because of this. it really can kill their quality of life not to end on a bad note but there was a study which showed that it was i think it included like 2000 people with ibs and they showed that they would be they said they would be willing to give up 25 percent of their remaining life to be symptom free wow which i think for people who don't have ibs is really important to hear so they can relate mm. to these people who are you know they don't have a test that says they've got cancer or something, but they are struggling so much inside. And obviously there's different degrees. Some people mm. don't have it as severe, but there are many people that do. Yeah. It's yeah. Even judging from the emails you can see. Um, so yes, in order to end on hope, yes. let's just say that hopefully what this episode has done is empower the listeners to, and I definitely feel empowered for reading the book of understanding that actually it's on me. I have a responsibility to myself to make sure that I have those, uh, those seven action plans, the, the plant base in my diet, which I know I'm not very good at. Yeah. And no one should have to live with debilitating gut symptoms. So for those who please like do something about it. It's, mm. you know, today's day and age, we have the knowledge, we've got the science to show the different strategies at work. So thank you so much. The links to your social media, your book will obviously be in the show notes, but Megan, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you found that conversation between Megan and I helpful. If you would like to get in touch with the show, please do email me at thebeautypodcast at gmail.com or slide into my DMs on Instagram or Twitter where I'm at Emma Guns. Or if you feel so inclined, why not join the Facebook group? There's a click, click the link in the show notes to join. You have to answer three questions. Please answer them. And you have to agree to the group's rules. Otherwise, I can't let you in. It's as simple as that. But there are over, well, there are thousands and thousands of other listeners of this podcast in there having conversations about all sorts of things, gut health, wellness, fitness, beauty, whatever it might be. So click that link, join, and please, I'd love to welcome you into the group. Thank you so much for listening. I'll see you on the next one. <laughs>